All right, let's open to Acts. The book of Acts. There they are. The book of Acts, chapter 3. Uh, page 911 in the blue pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, we have been opening up this part of God's Word uh, and uh, in between our study through the beginning of Proverbs that Jeff has been leading us through, we're, we're also endeavoring to go in, in big sections through this narrative, this story in the book of Acts. So we're going to continue that this morning in Acts chapter 3 and part of chapter 4. Imagine a movie with this basic plot set up. Two men come into a town. They show up at the town meeting and they tell everyone that their boss aims to rule the whole town. The men demonstrate how serious their boss is by taking control of one of the townspeople's homes. They tell the town that it has 24 hours to decide whether to surrender to their boss. The town council gets together to decide what to do. At this point, what are your assumptions about who is good and bad in this story? What are you hoping will happen? Probably many of us are hoping for the town to rally and fight off the oppressive boss, right? Run him right out of town. But what if I filled in the details a little bit? And what if I told you that this town had just killed an innocent person? And the home the two men had taken over was owned by a man who had been oppressed his entire life. I begin this way to show us that we have some basic assumptions we carry about power. About power. For many of us, we think, we tend to think it is better to wield power than to surrender to it. But what if the power we attempt to wield is worse for us than the power that another offers to use for our good? Is surrender still a worse option? Well, we'll consider that this morning as we continue our study in the book of Acts. We've been following the historical story of a king named Jesus and his expanding kingdom happening through his witnesses, his words, and his spirit's power. As we've opened up Acts in the first couple chapters, all of this kingdom work and growth has been going remarkably well. Many people are recognizing that they need to surrender to the king in Acts chapter 2. Many subjects are added to his kingdom. And life in the kingdom is marked by peace and unity and generosity. But in Acts chapter 3 and 4, the Jesus kingdom runs up against a rival kingdom. How that happens and what happens is going to be the focus of our time this morning. So my, my sermon will have three parts that follow this text. Part number one, Jesus offers his kingdom. And that will be in looking at chapter three. Jesus offers his kingdom. Part number two, we will navigate with a question. Will you give up your kingdom? Chapter four, verse one through 22. Will you give up your kingdom? And then finally, third part, the kingdom belongs to Jesus. 
chapter 4, verse 23 to 31. My aim in this and my prayer is that we will be persuaded, all of us, that it is best for us to surrender to Jesus than to fight for power over our own lives. So first part, Jesus offers his kingdom. I'm going to read a big chunk of this passage now, verse 1 through 26. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. That's, that's like uh, charity, gift offerings. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now brothers I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. That as Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus. Whom heaven must receive until this time for restoring all the things about which God spoke. By the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken. From Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Chapter starts off with this remarkable event, a miracle, uh, a beggar cripple healed. You see, now that Jesus has ascended back to heaven, the apostles are now Jesus' agents of wonder-working power. 
Jesus continues his work just by other hands. But his, his purpose is still the same as when he was on earth. The miraculous signs performed by the apostles direct the people to find salvation in Christ Jesus the King. So Peter and John are emissaries sent by Jesus to demonstrate Jesus' power and to deliver Jesus' message. So they insist, even though people try, they insist that no one credit them with the healing miracle. They insist that people see Jesus at work in it. They invite everyone who witnessed the physical healing to consider that they too need healing of a sort. A spiritual healing. What Peter and John have come to offer to all these people that they will speak to is a place in Jesus' kingdom. The miracle is simply the flashing arrow pointing people. Jesus' kingdom is now here. Come in and enjoy it yourself. And we live in a country that has a deep history of suspicion about anything related to kings and kingdoms. The word kingdom feels very foreign, very anti-American, very unrevolutionary war-ish, very unconstitutional. So Jesus' kingdom may hit your ears and sound oppressive. It may sound like subjects under the heel of a military conqueror who takes for himself and leaves people who are then in his wake hurt and hungry. But I want to take that out of your mind, if I can, and, and encourage you to get a definition of Jesus' kingdom on your mind and your heart based on what you see of him, the king, in this passage. Because really, when Jesus offers you his kingdom, what he is essentially offering you is life with him. That's why the apostles keep repeating the name of Jesus Christ in their signs and in their sermons. This is all about who Jesus is, what he's capable of. What is this kingdom? It's life with Jesus, the king. So to know what he is offering you through his apostles, to know what he's offering us through his word, we need first and primarily to know what kind of king is this king Jesus who brings a kingdom. And then like the crippled to respond to him in belief. So I want to show you from this passage three, three kinds, three ways we see the kind of king Jesus is. First, Jesus is the kind of king who uses his limitless power to restore broken people. That's the kind of rule you're being invited under, into. See, this healing, this miracle is remarkable. Forty years of cripple. Forty years of paralytic. In a moment gets up and walks and jumps. Any doctor in the room is going to tell you that that man's atrophied leg muscles could not have held his body. So this is not just a, a kind of fake faux healing. This is, this is a full restoration instantaneously of the man's physical makeup. This is muscles growing in an instant. This is bones becoming strong in a moment. This is creator of life power on display. But even, 
Even so, let's, let's peer past the physical and let's notice the man himself. This is a beggar man. This is an outcast man. This is a suffering man, a hungry man, a man who looks down when he talks to you, a man left without dignity, a man who can do nothing for himself, not a shred of self-worth, self-dependence, self-power. There are other men in this passage we're going to encounter. Powerful men. Well-dressed men. Publicly dignified men. For all their status and fancy clothes, it's only the beggar man who leaves the story with a share in the kingdom of God. It is worth your time to get to a place where you can see yourself similar to this beggar man. Because then you can see the king when he offers his kingdom to you. Jesus sends his messengers to this man with a gift of power. This is the man King Jesus decides to bring into his kingdom. And when politicians and emperors and dynasties decide to set up their power, they typically go about it by garnering the favor and the pocketbooks of the powerful and the wealthy. Not Jesus. That tells you something about how he views his power in his kingdom. It's something he wants to give to you. And he doesn't need you to give him anything in return in order to have it. You're here this morning. And there is something broken in you. I say that because I know it's true about me. Something broken in all of us. I can't promise you physical healing. If your particular brokenness is a trial of an ongoing chronic ailment, but I can point you to the one who is able, the one who is the creator of life. I don't know if he would want to heal you, but I know that he can hold your life in his hands. The one who has given you life can bring you life, and, and we have certainly, as his people, look forward to when he will bring us out of death into life. When I bring you to Jesus this morning and point you to him, I can promise you power. There is power in Jesus' name. Believe in the power that Jesus holds. His power is certainly the kind that can restore what is broken in us. Were you abused? He can heal you. Were you discarded? He will take you. Have you been left to fend for yourself in the trials of life or chewing you up and spitting you out? He has something for you. Are you in despair and are you despondent? Lift your head, downcast soul. Don't lift your head to me. Lift your head to Jesus whose name I speak to you. Stand up. You don't need to be pressed down any longer. You don't need to stay dejected any longer. Jesus, the king of power, offers himself to you and tells you he will give you his strength to help you walk in faith and life. This is the Jesus' power. This is the kingdom that the apostles had stepped into this arena to declare. It was nothing less than this. It was being told and preached through the manifest power of the spirit in healing this man. Life in Jesus' kingdom is where we are restored. 
And if in some ways you don't experience complete restoration in this life, I tell you with all certainty that behind Jesus and in Jesus and believing in him, you will experience it in the life that is coming when your king returns. Jesus is that kind of king. Jesus is the kind of king who shows mercy to his murderers. Look at verse 13 and 14. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Peter and John openly and boldly indict the crowd for being complicit in the execution of God's son. He says they presided over the death of him whom they all depended on for life. But then notice Jesus extends mercy to these murderers. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you had acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So Jesus, who rose from the dead and in chapter 1 resumed his place of supreme authority in heaven, is now extending mercy to those who killed him. Not an inkling of revenge or vindictiveness. Not an ounce of, how could you? No, King Jesus knew this was his path all along. He chose the path that led the people he came to save, putting him on the cross. Why? So that he could offer us the way through the cross that leads to life. Forgiveness through his sacrifice. Salvation through his resurrection. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. His mission was mercy. I went to university, or I finished university, in Charleston, South Carolina. And while I was there in that town, you may remember this, when it happened. It's been 20 years or so. Maybe, maybe it's happened since then. I can't quite remember the date. But there was a shooting in that town at a church in the city that rocked the city. Uh, um, a man walked into a Bible study in a church uh, with a gun attended the Bible study, then opened fire, fire and took people's lives. In the aftermath of that situation, the eyes of the nation were on the court trial that was held to decide what would happen to the murderer. The eyes of the nation were locked onto a daughter of one of the victims who was given the opportunity to address her mother's murderer in court. And when, she, and when she spoke, she spoke words of forgiveness in Jesus' name. The only thing that could have exceeded that expression of forgiveness and mercy would have been the mother herself coming back from the dead to extend her forgiveness in the courtroom that day. Friends, that's what Jesus has done in the courtroom that matters most. Jesus, the crucified son, whose father presides over all things, pleads their mercy for murderous sinners whose sin drove the nails into his hands and the spear into his side. And for anyone who will look to him for the mercy he extends, 
the Father gladly gives grace and forgiveness. So brothers and sisters who, who have received mercy from Jesus, what can we not forgive? Can we not see Jesus offering his life to forgive us and will we still hold back from forgiving each other? Will we refuse to live full life in his kingdom because we must curse those who hurt us instead of bless like Jesus did? Can we not see that even the sins of others we hold on to are sins Jesus pled mercy for from God? If Jesus would forgive, then why wouldn't we? Life in Jesus' kingdom is where we can know we've been forgiven. That the judge sees the sacrifice made by his righteous son and by it we are declared free from guilt. Given Christ's righteous standing before the Father. Life is where we are restored to fellowship with Jesus right now. And where we get the blessing of his presence in our life and the promise of his return. That's the kind of king Jesus is. Thirdly, Jesus is the kind of king who planned to bless people who reject him. And I want to argue to you that this whole passage, that whole sermon that the apostles were preaching that morning and that we have heard again, is aimed at convincing us that the blessing of the kingdom of Jesus comes as we surrender to him, our king. Verse 17 through 25 rehearses the plan of God to extend the offer of his kingdom to all people, beginning with the Jewish people. They heard from the prophets. They received promises of blessing through their fathers, especially Abraham. The point was that always God would bless his people. And the kind of blessing becomes clear with the arrival of Jesus Christ. See, he was the one that all the prophets and all the promises were pointing to. And so when he finally arrives, look at the blessing God intends to give us through Jesus, stated there clearly in verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Church, when God promised Abraham to bless you in Jesus, he wasn't thinking about your career path. He wasn't thinking about your physical health. He wasn't predicting a life of fame for you. And that's what he thought of as blessing. No, he, he had his eyes primarily on coming and placing his saving hands on your heart, your dead heart, to shock it to life with his power. And then to put his hands on your eyes so that you could see. And then put his fingers in your ears to unstop them so that you could hear. And then have his gentle yet firm hands on your shoulders to take you in the direction you were going and turn you the other direction. And then put one hand on your back as your guide and one hand on your heart as his constant presence with you. And side by side walk you in the opposite direction. The way of obedience to him. The way away from sin that constrained us and enslaved us. And the way that leads into eternal life. That's what he had his plan set on for you. If he lives with you, then he walks with you. And as he walks with you, you will regularly experience desires to turn to his way and not your own because he walks with you. And then you will know that you are very, very blessed by God.
Life in Jesus' kingdom is where we live in holiness. Where we claim full responsibility for our acts of rebellion. We confess them to our merciful and forgiving king. And appeal to him to help us walk in his righteous kingdom ways. This is the kind of king. Praise Jesus who doesn't leave beggars in their squalor. Or prisoners in their shackles. Damned in our curses. He comes and he says, look at me and live. Follow me out of sin and into obedience. This is the king we all need. And he offers his rule in our lives this morning. Which leaves us with a question, which is the second part of this passage. Question is this. Will we give up our kingdoms? Will we give up our kingdoms to Jesus? Look at chapter 4. Verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men who came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So the blessing of re- repentance in the apostles' sermon has been offered. The people are called to repent and turn back. Turning back means turning from wickedness. But what are they to turn to as they turn? Well, in light of the bigger conversation that is happening in the book of Acts about the king and his kingdom... Repentance to Jesus looks like surrender to his kingship, at least. It's a willing bowing of your knee, of your life to him as your king, and a welcome of his powerful, merciful rule, which brings blessing in our lives. 
Faith in Jesus, a response to his kingship, is a deep belief that he is the king. That by his kingship, he has come to give us life. And as a response, a commitment to be loyal to him with our lives forever. King Jesus offers his kingdom by calling for our surrender to him. So will you do that? I think there are many here who are happy to have Jesus as their king. Kind of people who hear the news and gladly have repented because God has worked on their heart to respond that way. Keep on living the kingdom life in repentance. But there are, I'm sure, maybe not, maybe, maybe there are at least a few people here who are not as happy to have Jesus as your king. Just like the men, the council in Acts chapter 4. Despite the obvious blessing that Jesus offers and the overwhelming power he has to do what he promises, some people don't want what he offers because of what it requires from them. Total surrender. Now, I, while I would commend to you the response of the people in verse 4, most of this section focuses on the other group. The religious authorities who levy their influence and authority to try to silence Peter and John from talking about Jesus. They arrest the men. They threaten the men. They command the men to stop speaking the name of Jesus. I think the author, Luke, wants us to see that this is a struggle for power. This is what's on the temple leaders' minds when they interrogate Peter and John. What power are you using? And whose name are you invoking? And even though the high priest acknowledged something powerful was done to the crippled man, they don't want the news to spread. Why? Well, in John 11, after Jesus raises a man from the dead, this council gathers and says that if they let him continue, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come take away both our place and our nation. The advent of Jesus's rule means an inevitable end to theirs. I think some people mistakenly conceive or think of God's kingdom like a game of bumper cars. When his rule runs against our insistence to rule our own lives, God just kind of bounces off and goes looking for someone else who will be more agreeable. I'd encourage you to see it more like a face-off. A face-off between you, if you insist on your own way and rule, holding a water gun, and God's tidal wave coming. If you want to call that a collision, okay. But be clear that in the end, God holds all the power. For a long time, the temple had been the place where God's presence was. The law was the functional authority. The priest class were the ones who wielded both authority and influence in a very religiously minded society that was Israel. But all those things have reached their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And now Jesus is opening up a whole new system. No more physical temple, but a spiritual one. He, he lives in inside all his people. No more priest class for everyone in the kingdom. His kingdom is a priest. No more need for interpreters of the law and scribes because the word is now delivered by the son through the spirit and written on hearts, not on tablets of stone. 
So I think this passage is a fascinating lens through which to perceive how power plays in the human heart. The priests openly admit that something remarkable happened, even undeniable had happened. They also shrewdly calculate that they'd take a real political hit if they publicly oppose the sign. Many people pursue power because they think they can do more with the puppet strings in their hands than without. But notice how these men, in fact, become the puppets themselves. The strings, the desire for power tied to their minds and their hearts, the desire for power starts to control them. They won't even, they can't even see the reality of what's happening in front of their faces and admit it. And believe in Jesus. The illusion of power can blind you. Power can deafen you. Power can desensitize you. Power can deaden your empathy for the plight of others. And most of all, power that you think you hold can convince you that you don't need Jesus' kingdom. And that your kingdom can stand up against Jesus's. With all the clear dangers power presents... And we still pursue our own power constantly, don't we? Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, tempted to believe that there was a power to be had outside of God's rule. Israel sought a king in Saul who could lead them to military victories. You are being tempted constantly, whether you realize it or not, to take power for yourself. In our culture right now, theories abound that popularize the idea that words have no inherent meaning. And they are just tools used by those trying to get and maintain societal power. But what are those theories being used for? To take down the position of authority in order to place the critics in the place of power. Our world is an ongoing deadly game of king of the hill and no one stays on top for long. Beware the allure of power is a deceitful thing. The two-dimensional view of power's promise is that there is something to climb and a top to get to where there is influence and status and wealth and fame and control. But then you see the image in three dimensions and you see there is a fatal cliff on the other side. There's nothing after it. You climb and you climb and you get to the top and you realize, then what? So beware the cravings for power we carry into relationships like our marriages. Beware the craving for power that you may carry into your office, to your friendships. Notice the note, the desire for power that can harbor in our hearts when we get upset because things don't go the way we're expecting. When plans don't come together. When people respond different than we want. When friends or spouses don't do what we want. That is an indication that our heart wants the power. But more than these instances, I want to I warn us through the religious authorities example of one huge temptation we face all the time. One huge temptation. And that's this. To believe that there is a way to live under a rule that is not God's. This is the glaring idiocy of the solution that the council comes up with in verse 17. They see the miracle. They hear everyone talking about the miracle. They acknowledge that a real sign is a real thing. What should they have done? Believe what they saw. 
Listen to the apostles. It's the obvious next step. But instead, they attempt to stop it with threats. Is there anyone here who thinks that by the power of your words, you will stop the hand of God from moving? I hope the answer is a resounding no. So why do we resist his loving pressure, Christians, to give him control over our hearts? Let him have whatever it is you feel you must protect. Whatever keeps you awake worrying about, let him have that. He's asking for that. He's asking for that and he's asking for your heart with it. And why are you, who doesn't believe in Jesus and will not follow him, why are you still gripping tightly to the illusion of total control when you know there's many powers that could turn your life upside down today or maybe already has? Surrender your heart to the Lord today. Let him set up his good and perfect rule over your life. The apostles' response to the council's threat is so instructive to us. The council comes with threats backed by their institutional authority. They've got guards. They've got a prison. And the apostles say, you have no jurisdiction here. When it comes to the name of Jesus, there is only one who owns that name. He can use it however he wants. Satan would have you first believe that you don't need the name of Jesus in your kingdom. But if he can't do that, he'll seek to get you to believe that Jesus' name has been banished from our world and has no power here. Look at the apostles, Christian, and learn how to walk in great confidence in Jesus above all earthly powers. The apostles guided by the Spirit lead us to surrender to Christ's kingdom and leave the empty pursuit of personal power behind. King Jesus has the power and authority in our life. And if we're honest, he uses power in ways we don't and we can't. With his power, he rescues and restores and liberates and saves. What do we do with our power? When we enter Jesus' kingdom, we gladly leave our weak attempts at power at the gate. So it's time to lay down our rival kingdoms. It's time for me to lay down my fearful grip that demands financial security. It's time for me to see an opportunity in parenting, to let little infractions of my preferences go and embrace the role of creating an environment in my home where we're happy because King Jesus is on the throne. This is the time for me and the other elders to lead this church resting in the power of our king to set the course of our church and apply his wonder-working power to the task ahead of us. Now is the time for us to abandon our personal opinions about what traditions or programs ought to be here or what ministries we feel we ought to be in charge of and let Jesus create a people and a culture and a gospel ministry that does what he wants to do in us and through us. It is time for us to enter our days saying to our king, take us where you want us to go, even if it's not in our plan. The apostles offered the council the tremendous blessing of, blessing of salvation in Jesus' name, verse 12. But because they wanted a name for ourselves, the authorities wouldn't surrender. Don't follow them. In the end, there is only one kingdom. Built on one person, 
the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. What in the world do you stand to gain if you turn your back on the only one who can save your eternal life? This leads us into the last part of our text where we see that the kingdom belongs to Jesus. Look at verse 23. When they, released, when, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There's a famous photograph that you've probably seen of a man standing with his arm outstretched in Tiananmen Square as a tank rolls toward him. If you don't know the backstory of the revolution against an oppressive regime, then the man looks like a fool. For who would believe that flesh and bones could face off against guns and steel and win? But when you understand that citizens had decided to stand up against corruption and abused authority, the man comes through the photograph as a hero to inspire others to the same heroism. Peter and John are the men in front of the tank of political power. The gauntlet has been thrown down. Speak about Jesus again, and the powers that be will roll forward and crush them. A few uneducated men from the backcountry were in a standoff against people with real governmental power. Power to threaten, arrest, imprison, and kill. So put yourself in the room of friends who greet Peter and John as they come back from that interaction. Peter, John, come in. We were there when you were arrested. We've been wondering what happened after that. We've been waiting here all last night and today. Tell us. Peter and John answered, we were speaking about Jesus the king, as you know. The council told us we have to stop. But we said we have to be true to the task the king has given us and keep telling people that we saw him crucified and resurrected. And that's what we intend to do. Then someone in the room says, we should pray. And the first words uttered in praise and petition are, sovereign Lord. Power, threats, jail. What other dangers are ahead for these men? And God's people say, God, you reign. Some people met Jesus and tried to push back his power. Others welcomed his power and found it to be their security in times of greatest trial. Which kind of people are we? In trial, you can rest in God's control. Ask the Lord that your first instinct when trials come be that you say, Sovereign Lord, you reign. This kind of trusting is a kind of surrender. Coming yourself to leave yourself in his hands, not to leave with his control put in your hands. 
The ability to say, Lord, it's your kingdom. And because of that, it's your call about what you want to do with my life. Brothers and sisters, this can be a huge part of your ministry here. You and I and our God-given roles in this church as brother and sister, pastor and member, priests, all of us, helping each other trust in the plan and power of King Jesus. And God's word will be throughout our lives our steady source of comfort and courage, just like it was for the early church. In verse 25 and 26, they pick up Psalm 2 and they apply the words to Jesus. Although the Roman and Jewish governments conspired against Jesus to put him to death, it was God's hand and God's sovereign plan that were guiding all the events. In other words, although the council raged against them for speaking Jesus' name, the Christians knew God held all the real power. Power to control, power to plan, power to make happen, and power to push his kingdom forward. As Jesus began to work, these men and women trust he will continue to work. Working miracles that confirm that he is moving and establishing his rule. So they ask the Lord for strength to continue as witnesses to his name. Even when they know the rulers are plotting against them. And their trust in Jesus is quickly affirmed. As soon as their prayers go up, the spirit sends an answer. Power demonstrated in the place. And the power... To witness delivered to their hearts. Though the decree of men prohibited the name of Jesus being spoken. The power of the spirit promoted the ministry of Jesus anyways. Church. How would our king have us, his citizens. Live in the days when other kingdoms are raging against him. And clamoring to tear down his kingdom. As a people set on speaking his name and telling people that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his kingdom has come. That's how. Our king has no rival, so we don't need to be afraid to talk about him with our neighbor or a complete stranger. God's chosen and anointed son could not be held down by death. That's the kind of power people need in their life to raise them from their brokenness and batteredness by sin. Church, let's pray for power for witness. For rest in Christ's power as we witness. And for the Holy Spirit's power to push forward Jesus' kingdom through our witness. So as we close... In this collision of kingdoms in Acts 3 and 4, which kingdom would you say comes out on top? The Lord's kingdom surges forward and human power buckles under the weight. A different story cannot be written for no one can rival the power of God. Don't attempt a coup against the holy and righteous Son of God and King Jesus when all the power belongs to him and life in his kingdom is obviously the better way. Jesus offers his kingdom to us. All the power is his, not ours. So let's welcome him as king and surrender our lives again or for the first time to his control and to his plan for our lives.